really one of the toughest questions that we face as Christians. And that is, why does it happen that when people are genuinely committed to Christ, that they still suffer? It's an age-old question. And maybe you find yourself in a spot, or maybe you have some friends who are, frankly, fed up with God. Uh, I meet this a lot. Because the, their level of suffering just wasn't a part of the deal. And Jeremiah encapsulates this thinking when he says, Woe is me, for the Lord has added sorrow to my pain. I am weary with my groaning, and I find no rest. I mean, that says it well, right? Now, first of all, suffering, what is it? Well, it, it, I'm not talking about a nuisance, okay? And some will say this, you know, my, my trash bill went up, so I'm suffering. Or I lost my password to my Amazon account, that's suffering, uh, no. Or I've got a man cold, okay? That's not suffering. Uh, when we use the word suffering today, we're talking about grade A kind of suffering. Job knew what that was like. He was the quintessential sufferer. The book of the Bible that bears his name recounts 42 chapters of this conversation, particularly in the first uh, chapter, between God and Satan about Job. And then several of his friends are mixed in with this. And you probably heard the basics of the story. Um, Satan claims that the only reason that Job is serving God is because Job has all these blessings. Uh, he's wealthy. He's living high off the hog. So obviously, he's going to say, yeah, God gave me all this and I'm serving God. Take that away, and Job's spiritual life's going to tank. That's what Satan was saying to God. So when God allows Job's business to go south, and in addition, he loses his kids, um, uh, I mean, that, that, that's a big deal. But Job still continued to honor God. Uh, Satan goes to plan B. And he says, well, listen, if I were to take Job's health away from him, then, then we'll really see. Because uh, I just think his spiritual life's hanging by a thread. Um, and he does. Gives him boils right? All over his body. And Satan, or, or Job, loses his family, his, his job, his holdings. His wife curses him, right? But he continued to honor God. So I think we could say uh, with some degree of accuracy that that's a grade A kind of suffering. That was Job's experience. In the midst of this experience, we find what I think are some of the most beautiful verses in the Bible of how we can attend to this and minister to somebody in pain. We read this in Job 2. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place 
Eliphaz, the Temanite, Bildad, the Shuite, and Zophar, the, the Namathite, they made an appointment together to sh come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. I'm assuming that was because of the boils. I don't know. Um, and they raised their voices and wept, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And get this. And when they sat with him on the ground seven days, seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Now, those are the kinds of friends I think we'd really like to have right there. That's the kind of empathy that, that soothes the heart. They showed him sympathy and comfort just by sitting with him. Didn't speak a word. For a week. If the book of Job ended there, that'd make for a pretty good ending. But we know, not only with Job, but the rest of the Bible, it's a real life slice. It's one of the things I love about the Word of God. And the fact is, is that when it comes to suffering, we have to endure many well-intentioned but poorly delivered attempts to relieve suffering. Just ask the first-time mother who has to hear stories from other mothers of all the things that went wrong in their pregnancies. Or the cancer victim who's given an uninvited grocery list of all the things to do or eat and then told to have more faith for God to heal. Again, I think a lot of this comes from a well-intentioned place. But I think people who want to fix it rather than lean into it. This has some truth to it. Truth number one. People who mean well will offer uninvited advice. And they're going to be disappointing to us because they're not entering into the pain. Instead, they're looking for a quick fix. Truth two, when we have a sufferer in our midst, listen more than speak. Sit with the person and know that love is expressed by your presence. This isn't exactly inspirational truth, but I think it's, Reality. Wisdom from the pages of Scripture that could literally save us a whole lot of consternation. Now, all three friends came to Job with a variation of the same theme. You are suffering because you did something wrong. Get that right and you're not going to suffer anymore. Um, Eliphaz called for Job to repent. Bildad said pretty much the same thing, a little less sympathetic. 
said, the fate of the wicked is trouble. Zophar was the most brutal, said, Job simply didn't understand how God works. And Job's response is summed up in these words in Job 19. How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? That has been us sometimes. Or that's been maybe some of our friends. And then here's a conclusion that Job reached with his friends when he says in Job 30, verse 29, I am a brother of jackals and a companion of ostriches. Janet gave me that one year, that verse for anniversary. (laughs) Didn't appreciate it. He's saying, my friends stick their head in the sand and my pain and my suffering. Job's family and friends let him down. And everybody in here could say, I know what that's like. Somewhere along the line, Christians, particularly American evangelical Christians, have made the conclusion that if they live for Christ, then things will go their way. You live in a third world country, you're probably not going to believe that so much. But how we handle disappointment with God and others is a major factor in our endurance. Perhaps our own perception, perspective, becomes more important than what others are doing for us or not doing for us. Years ago, Janet and I had dinner with a a dear pastor friend of mine who's now passed. He had a lung disease. And when we met with he and his wife, he didn't have a very long time to live. And he said he understood a long time ago that life isn't fair. And he didn't say this out of bitterness. He wasn't bitter. What he meant is he simply did not expect all the circumstances to work in his favor. This was a man who loved God with all his heart, was faithful. It's another way of saying disappointment is accepted as a part of life. Now, I know there are probably some of you that wish that I could give you a verse on joy and happy smiles. Okay? Just slap that on top of everything that's going on and it'll make it great. But that's not reality. I think, I think the verses of the Bible like this just get down really where we're at. Now, I think that joy can be experienced in the midst of grief and suffering. But I'm not talking about the happy plastic smile kind of stuff. Now, Satan was working on this premise with Job that if he served God, it was only because things were going well for Job. Man serves God, God's going to make life easier. 
And if God allows suffering, a man's going to quit serving God. That was Satan's thinking. And that's sometimes our thinking. Newsflash. When our thinking aligns with Satan, it's time to make a change. Yeah? When we come to Christ, God doesn't give us everything we want. But when we have Jesus, we truly have everything we need in suffering. Christians get cancer. Christians have sickness and pain. Christian spouses have their partners leave. Christians lose their jobs. Job said, we read this in Job 1, Then Job arose, tore his robe, shaved his head, fell on the ground and worshipped, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Whoa, jeez, can I say that in my suffering? In all this, I did not sin or charge God with wrong. That's pretty amazing. didn't say Job never sinned. It said in this situation, with the suffering, the suffering was not used as a reason to remove God from the picture. See, I think for a lot of us here in America, it matters whether we have it all. Let's be honest. Right? I, I was thinking the other day, Amazon is a wonderful thing, right? It's an amazing thing. But I, I notice how much it feeds my consumeristic attitude, you know? Man, I, you know, I'd love to have some speakers out to get on Amazon. 30 seconds later, I can have them come into my house. Anything I think that I want, I can buy. And there it is. Now, I'm not saying Amazon's bad. I'm saying that there are times maybe I have an ache in my heart where I want something, and maybe it's not really what I need. Maybe I can say no to some stuff and realize God is all I need. I don't, you know, I don't want to make too much about Amazon, but I'm just saying my, my heart is prone to look at so many other things instead of being filled up with God. I think some of you may know what I'm talking about. God is with us no matter what. I may not know the reasons he gives and the reasons he takes, but we know he's with us and we know he's working. I played baseball until I was about 15 years old. I had a very storied career in my own head. Um, when my boys were young, I helped coach a couple of their teams. And there's such a thing 
as baseball chatter, then I think it illustrates a truth here for us. That as a, as a batter comes to home plate, voices scream a myriad of instructions. Now, I heard this when I played. My boys heard this as they played. Uh, most of the time, it comes from parents and maybe even from your own team. Things like, keep your eye on the ball. Swing level. Step into it. Drive the ball. Watch out for the curve. It only takes one swing. Get yourself a ribby. And on and on and on it goes. And their, their instruction, the voices, wished for the success of the batter. But there was an opposing team playing defense who also had baseball chatter. And their voices gave opposite kinds of instructions. They wanted your failure. And they scream, the batter has no stick. Hey, pitcher, strike this guy out. Or the batter can't hit a beach ball. I heard that in my career. Again, the cheering wished for the failure of the batter. You see, we have competing voices swirling around in our heads in suffering. And the opposing voices could be from Satan, they could be from your flesh, they could be from the world. Janet and I talked about this recently, and I was of the opinion, you may disagree, that I don't really sit there and try to dissect where the voices are coming from. I can just identify pretty quickly whether it's a lie or not. And so I, I have to choose truth. And some people say, well, you know, I want to try to see if this is Satan or what. I'm like, well, good luck with that. Sometimes I just can't tell where it's coming from, but I know it's a lie. And that's all I need to know. Here's the thing. We get to choose the voices that we will heed. Some will lead to our defeat. Some will affirm who we are in Christ and what God has ahead for us. See, you may hear voices like, you better not mess up or God's going to drop you like a hot potato. You're good for nothing. You'll never get over this sin. God is out to get you. Doesn't matter what you do, nobody knows and nobody cares. You are such a failure. See, I can always recognize those voices that that's from the opposition. They're not truthful and they're not reality. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 10.5, we are destroying speculations. Made up stuff in our head. And every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, wherever those come from. And we're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. I am not made to think a certain way. I don't have to. I get to choose what thoughts I will heed. Many of you think you're in bondage 
to your thoughts, and you're not. You can choose what thoughts. This is another way of saying some voices aren't worth listening to. And we need to tell the difference between the opposition, that chatter, and our coach. And in our case, our coach is the Holy Spirit living inside of us. And his words we find in the Word of God. Nehemiah 9 is a wonderful example of the words of suffering people. Now, listen, where the suffering comes from, is it because I made this mistake, did that, um, you know, or something external is happening? Again, I don't know that we can always tell those things. Certainly in Israel's case, in Nehemiah 9, they didn't always get it right. They needed direction and encouragement. And we see here their confession. We see truth. We see reality. And what we get from this is suffering is to be expected. But we see God is still there and God is still working. So it's a confession from the Israelites of how good God has been to them. This is what we read in Nehemiah 9.27. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies. I mean, right there, God was allowing the mistreatment. That just blows apart a lot of evangelical thinking in America. Who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you, and you heard them from heaven. And according to their great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. Saviors, small s. Is all mistreatment a direct consequence of our sin? No. But even if it played a part, what we see is that God is still at work. That God is present, even in the suffering. God was there when Israel was mistreated. And he's here with us. And that, my friends, is the irreducible minimum of faith. He's here. He loves me. If I think he's obligated to heal, give me the money, make it all work out in my favor, you are on a pathway of great disappointment and bitterness with God. I know there's some with a theological construct that says, well, that's just not enough faith. You know, you're, you're taking the wrong view, blah, blah, blah. Well, all I can say is I just think they're wrong. And I don't think that's the Jesus way. Jesus said that suffering marks us as a believer. Jesus said in John 15, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Well, 
This was opposition that they got because of their faith. And what it shows is that we're followers of Christ and we have enemies. And we're to take comfort in suffering. Yes, it's a special kind of suffering because it confirms you as one of his children. It's okay if it's hard. I know it hurts. It's okay if you grieve. It might be the grief over the loss of a relationship, loss of your health, whatever. God is not asking us to deny our pain. He's not asking us to put on a plastic smile. You know, read a verse aloud. It all goes away. Sorry, it just doesn't work like that. He's reminding us that he's at work, even in the suffering. He travels with me in that valley of death. There he is. Again, I said it's a special kind of suffering. It's there because of my stance for Christ. Paul makes this point. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, um, but of your salvation and that from God. For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. There's so much in this verse, I can't break it all down, but what we see here is that God grants us grace, which we didn't deserve. That's cool, we see that. We saw that God grants us suffering, for Christ's sake, it's, a, it's an opportunity, it's a, it's a privilege. God is working during the suffering. And that there's kinship. Paul had it with the others who suffered. And that, that implies a, a vulnerability, a, a sharing of our lives with others in the suffering. We find relationships that endure. I guarantee you, the relationships that mean the most to you are the relationships that have endured hard times that you have through the years. There are others who don't want to do that. You don't agree with them? Hmm. And in our culture right now, churches are functioning on tribalism, not community. And tribalism is, I've got to have everybody who thinks the same politically. I've got to have everybody that wears orange hats. But that's not community. The community of Christ has a diversity of people in a variety of ways that diversity is expressed. And I still have the unity, the vulnerability, the community. That's a wonderful thing. I wouldn't trade that for anything. We really don't have good community unless there are a lot of people here I disagree with. It's not wrong to have a position on a variety of things, but what we saw through COVID was a lot of tribalism, politically, medically, your feelings on this or that. 
That's tribalism when I have to be with people that agree with me on that. But community says we are bound together by Christ. And when we suffer together as a community, over the long haul, it increases our bonds. And frankly, that's what's made 42 years of marriage so meaningful, so that Janet becomes so much more valuable to me now than when we first married. Because we've been through so much crap together. That was on my anniversary card to her. We've been through a lot of crap. I think you know what I'm talking about. The measuring stick for many Christians that, you know, when they kind of reach all that they want in the Christian life is to be a part of a social group to their own liking, to be upwardly mobile, and to enjoy a life of comfort. If we're really honest... That's at the rock bottom. What I really want. And people think that's the sign of God's blessing. I would suggest to you that the way of Christ has different markers. See, suffering has a way of stripping from us all the ways that we have idolized comfort and other things that we use to meet our needs. Vessels that don't hold water. When Christ is enough, we have everything we need to endure. When I realize that about Christ, then I can endure. I realize I don't have to have agreement even with my best friends because I've got Christ. I still love my friends. But I don't hold that out there as a you know, requirement for fellowship. Our perspective as followers of Christ, are not to be surprised at suffering, but we're to see it as valuable. Paul Borthwick, a teacher and author, was on a visit with one of his friends uh, in Beijing, China. He attended a church with four young men who were new believers thanks to his friend's ministry. And the service was in Mandarin, so Borthwick understood nothing. But he did think the pastor, who was up in age, an elderly man, seemed, frankly, boring. And you're saying, huh, boy, don't we know what that's like. All right. he, was, he was soft-spoken. He was stooped over. He preached without hardly any expression, little excitement or emotion. Okay? And at lunch, after the service, it's just kind of gnawed at Borthwick. And so he asked the four young Christians, he goes, you know, is, is your pastor a good preacher? Quite a, quite a question to ask someone, right? And this is what they said. Oh, yes. He's a great preacher. He spent many years in prison for Jesus Christ. Their measurement of the sermon and of the pastor's ministry 
had nothing to do with oratory ability and everything to do with a life faithfully lived in the face of suffering. Maybe instead of being beguiled by the normal external ways that people measure God's movement, we can allow what some count as boring as essential to the quality of the Christian life. Let me give you a new gold standard. Well, it's really not new, but it might be new to our thinking. And we might have to say no to the other things that we've put in there as the gold standard. Here's the gold standard. And this is why you don't often find this on church marquees. Suffering. Endurance. Faithfulness. Fellowship with God and others. Sacrificial service. That's a whole different kind of marking. For the life well-lived that God is pleased with. Listen, I don't want you to hear me to say that people who have health, people who have nice things, they're not living for Christ. I'm not saying that at all. All I'm saying is that's not the gold standard of the Christian life. And if God has blessed you with things, be grateful and leverage those for the kingdom. Use those to bless others. It's a great opportunity. Don't just consume and see how much you can get in your storage shed. Suffering, endurance, faithfulness, fellowship with God, sacrificial service. Can I get an amen to that? I got 10 of you that agree. I think I'll preach this message again. <laughs> I love y'all. I want more than anything for us to have our thinking and our hearts align with what the Holy Spirit has communicated in his word of what our life is to embrace. And as we do that, I think we'll find a lot less bitterness and disappointment in our lives because we've all faced it. In fact, I've asked a couple people to talk to us about that. So I'm going to ask Stan and Lynn, come on up here, will you? Most of you know Stan and Lynn Williams. They've been here for, I don't know how many years, but it's been a while. We count them as dear friends here. And before I get into asking you some questions, tell us kind of what you guys have been challenged with from a physical standpoint and what you've been suffering through. Uh, well, to make a long story short, uh, I went to have a quote, routine angiogram after I had some symptoms. And uh, 
the routine angiogram that was supposed to be 20 minutes in and out, you know, no later than the next day, turned into a, kind of a nightmare of a scenario. I had an artery that collapsed during the procedure, and that created a cascade of problems. And I was told that they did a code blue on me four times at that point. And I remember being shocked with the paddles one of those times. And then in ICU, when I was supposed to be in recovery, I guess they had to intubate me and they put a tube down my throat, gave me some anesthetic for anesthesia, which I reacted to badly and that stopped my heart again. And they had to do CPR and broke a couple of ribs. And something I didn't share in the first service that uh, I remember, a lot of things I don't remember about that time was, um, at one point, I remember thinking, I'm not going to make it. And I motioned to Lynn and motioned for a pen and paper. And I was, I was basically writing out my goodbyes to my family. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was a tough time. But shortly after that, many of you here who I learned were out in the foyer and waiting room praying. Some of you came in and started talking with me and joking around. And that gave me the fight to keep on keeping on. You know, that's kind of like Job's friends, you know, there was a point where it really made a difference just to have somebody come in with that encouraging word and, and even a joke or two. And uh, I went from despair to hope. Thank you, Stan. That, <clears throat> that was in August of 1999, right? 29. Uh, I don't, I don't, about, man, about I just, five years ago. No. <laughs> Wouldn't have been 99. No. It would have been 20 then. <laughs> no. 2019. I got 29. it. Yeah, yeah, 20. Somewhere around there. I found out that I had endometrial cancer. And so I had a hysterectomy that year. And Stan was still fighting his struggles that he was going through with his heart. So there were two of us down in the house. Ask our kids how much fun that was for them. <laughs> so that was in 20, and then I was um, went through hysterectomy and um, radiation. radiation, got through all of that, all looked well, ready to go again, and in August of 22, they found a spot on my lungs that they said was also endometrial cancer that had traveled. And so then I got to give up part of the lung and have chemotherapy and go through that for a couple years. And 
I guess one year. This is 23. See, I'm so good on dates. I don't remember. <laughs> Kids are lucky. I remember the year they were born. I have to use that to figure out how old they are. Let's see. It's Keisha's birthday and she was born in 91, so that makes her how old. I can't keep track of it. <laughs> <laughs> but it changed, it changed our, our expectations, okay? Stan had just retired. I was still working, but, you know, I could do it at any time, and we would have had fun doing whatever we wanted to have fun doing, and that wasn't what was going to happen now. So, more or less, just what we've gone through is just rearranged our thought process and what we thought we were going to do when we reached the golden years. I think that uh, when we go through something like that, all of us would pray for healing. I don't have to ask the question because I know you would have done the same thing just like I would have if I'd had something like that. But it didn't happen. At least not in the way we thought of. Was that a problem? Did that uh, become a challenge for you that God didn't just take it away? Yeah, it did at first. Uh, I really struggled with it because I, I was one of these people who watched you know, uh, 700 Club and heard all these testimonies of healing and I, you know, I was expecting this instantaneous healing to come about which you know it's been five years and I'm still on the road to recovery. So that didn't happen, but um, I, I did. I did have disappointment. I did wrestle with that, struggle with that. But I was also reminded of the fact that God kept me alive, you know, to be here with my kids and grandkids. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember this, Kevin, but you called me up, and um, it was during a time when I was probably at my lowest point in in struggle with everything that had happened. And I remember telling you then, Kevin, I don't want to blow it. I want to respond rightly to whatever, you know, God's putting me through. And um, he has helped me do that. He has reminded me when I've been at my lowest that uh, he's my sufficiency. I, I just have to throw myself totally on him and depend on him completely, even when the healing doesn't come like you expected to. God gave us Proverbs, and there's 31 of them. And today's the 17th, so this morning I read 17. And what shows up in the second verse that? In the same way that gold and silver are refined by fire, the Lord purifies your heart by the tests trials of life. And I don't think anybody gets through this life without tests and trials. I think we go through them different sometimes. Stan is a deep thinker. He's got so much on me by how deep he thinks. I go so far down and then I'm bubbling up. I'm not going to stay down there because I can't do it. But Stan can go to those places. I think Jesus went to those places when he was in the garden praying. Mm -hmm. He was able to get to those spots that are so dark and so devastating. I don't tend to dwell in those spots because that's just not me. But I'm glad I have a man in the house who does because it gives him wisdom that I miss. 
it's there. And then there's always James and what James has to say about it. My fellow believers, when it seems as though you are facing nothing but difficulties, see it as an invaluable opportunity to experience the greatest joy that you can. For you know that when your faith is tested, it stirs up in you the power of endurance. So, once again, suffering's good. Oh, boy. <laughs> You're standing in line to get a service of Somebody's going to serve you some suffering. Just think about the lunch ladies behind that line ready to swap some on that plate for you. <laughs> no, I don't want to get in that line. I just really don't. But when I thought this morning about how that purifies us, the proverb says that purifying of the gold and the silver. And I thought back to Matthew when Jesus was giving the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, How bliss you experience when your heart is pure. For then your eyes will open to see more and more of God. Isn't it strange how it's in the difficult places that we look to God more? We see it over and over in, in God's word when we go through the Old Testament and people would start suffering and then they'd start crying out, oh God, take us out of this. Get us out of this. We're in a mess. We've gotten a mess. So they are calling them to see more of him. And that's why he usually shows up, that it takes him to that place. Got introduced this week to a show that some of you may have watched the first time for me called Alone. And they take these people and they drop them in the middle of a wilderness somewhere where they get to take seven things to help them with that. <clears throat> and they don't have, you know, they have to come up with their own food, their own shelter, their own water. And I listen to the reasons when it starts, why they want to do this anyway. And some of them were, oh, to prove to my family, to myself, how strong I am. Mm. That I can endure all these things. And mm. then the next ones were, man, if I win that $500,000, this is what we can do. It will help us so much. Mm -hmm. We can do this and we can do that. And then they get plopped down on the island or wherever. A lot of them I was watching they were in Vancouver, right off of Canada and Washington. Mm -hmm. And as the time went on, as they suffered more, and they suffered more, the ones that wanted the $500,000 were like, it's not worth it. This is not worth it. Why am I doing this? This is not worth that. I can go home, I can see my family who I love, I can eat something that I, it's better than snails and watercress and whatever they were eating. And then the ones, I really like these guys, the ones who came to the end of themselves, who came to the end of their strength, were calling out to God. They were on their knees. And they were saying, God, I, I can't do this. I can't do this. Huh. And the struggles in our life take us to that place. I can't do this. And somebody comes up to me, oh, Lynn, you're so strong when you've gone through this. I'm not strong. I serve a strong God. It's not me. And that is just the biggest lesson to me through all this, is huh. to remember 
what God wants for me. He wants my total surrender to him. He's my provision. He's the one that does it all. Mm -hmm. I'm here getting to have him as my mm -hmm. person, my leader, my God, mm -hmm. who takes me through it. I can't do it without I love that. Thank you for that. And I, th I love seeing how different each of you are and how you've dealt with this and you've given each other room. Yeah, but you're, you're, not, but you're not expecting the partner to be like you or because I think that would have been incredibly frustrating. So I, I really, really appreciate that. Um, how are you different now than when you were before this started? Um, well, I think I shared earlier that one of the things that I really became acutely aware of in this in suffering, although mine doesn't compare at all to what Jesus went through, but I just uh, was driven to such a deep place of repentance, genuine repentance, over the things that I have done in my life that put Christ on the cross, and caused him to have to suffer. For us, that was probably one of the biggest things that, uh, the biggest changes that came about. And the other thing was just the compassion that I now have for people that go through suffering. Um, that you know, I thought I was sensitive to things like that before, but I, I can think back on times when friends of mine were going through things and, you know, I wasn't nearly as acutely aware of what they were dealing with is what I am now, having gone through suffering. It just it gives you a whole level of compassion, uh, more than what I for sure have. Hmm. If I could share one thing real quickly. Sure. Um, you had said something earlier about how the suffering reveals the idols of comfort and safety that we cling to. And I had written this down at some point, and I kind of have a journal that I keep, and I, I wrote, without discomfort, would we ever give up on our preferred source of safety for the faithful and sometimes painful love of God? Hmm. And in that, I realized that the, one of the changes that's come about is I'm, I'm recognizing I have to give up some comfort if I'm going to be in fellowship with God and, and close fellowship with him and have that intimacy because when you're at your lowest point you're you're driven to God you know your dependency is on him I would say how I'm changed a little bit more other than having more sympathy and empathy for the folks that are going through what I now know what it's like to go through I think God gives us all those experiences to help alongside someone who's going through it is the lesson of to look for God, to look for God to show up. Mm -hmm. He shows up in so many ways. Mm -hmm. I'll tell the story again that you had to listen to the first time. <laughs> That's all right. That's all right. Um, he shows up for me so many times in ways that I can giggle about, usually afterwards and not during. But uh, with the chemo, it gives you many kinds of symptoms that are just horrendous. 
And um, I had a big old lump that showed up on the side of my face here in like five minutes one night. <clears throat> Got into the doctor the next day and they told me it was because the chemo was drying out my mouth and there was a gland there that had plumped out. And that one of the things I needed to do was suck on some sour candy all the time. And so Stan and I had stopped on the way home at Mama Jean's to scan the candy aisle to see if there was some sugarless lemon drops. And we're standing there looking at the candy and I look over at Stan all of a sudden and I said, I've got to go to the restroom and I've got to go now. There better not be anybody in my way because I'm on the way there. And I got back to where it was and there, the door was closed, somebody was occupying, and then there was a person standing waiting in line, but I didn't pay much attention to him because I was looking at the floor, I was looking at the ceiling, and I was praying, oh God, what are we gonna do with this mess if I can hold it? <laughs> and you know, I think, okay, this is, a, this is an exit door, but oh, if I can just make it, it oh, just help me now. And just, in, just in a fervent prayer, and stood there for quite a while doing this when the bathroom door opened and out came the person that was inside and the person that had been standing to go next turned to me and said, Lynn, you can go ahead of me. Who is this person and they know my name and I get to go and I didn't take a whole lot of time to thank them but I looked at it and it was Katie Holt from church. Well, it was a likelihood they were going to do it. was going to put Katie Holt standing in the bathroom. And so I flew in there, took care of business, and came back and thanked her more greatly for allowing it. And then, oh my rejoicing, even while I was in the bathroom, Lord, you show up. Always you show up. Don't let me forget you. You're with me. You're with me in so many circumstances, in great ones and small ones. You're there. Watch for him. Watch for him in your daily life, in the things you see along the way. He's with us always. He is a man. Amen. Amen. I could have listened to you guys for 45 minutes. They probably wouldn't have wanted me to talk. I, I really appreciate you sharing. Thank you so much for this. It really was rich. And I, I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I did in sitting there. Father, thank you for um, Stan and Lynn and what you're doing in them your presence that has become very meaningful to them, uh, your work in their lives, your work in our lives in the midst of suffering. Give us continued hope, increase our faith, and may, may we see in the midst of the disappointment that you're still there. We love you and thank you for your word that is true. We pray this all in Jesus' name and all God's people said,